Let's pray together. Lord, we have just sung encouraging each other to be still, to recognize your presence. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do that and you'd help us here this morning to hear your voice. Lord, we've read the Bible. We believe or we're coming to believe that it's a written record of your word, of your words and actions in history. Lord, we pray that whoever we are, you'd win us over as we spend a few moments listening to your voice today. Help us to hear your voice, to know it to be true, and to, to long to live in the light of it. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we read a moment ago there from John chapter 4 on page 1068. I always encourage uh, people to have Bibles open in front of them to see what it is I'm talking about and where I'm getting it from and whether it's right or not. Um, so, so maybe I'd encourage you to do that. We're also going to look at a, a second section which we haven't read, so it, it'll be doubly useful to you at that point to have a, a Bible open in front of you uh, to see what it is I'm dealing with. So it's page 1068 if you want to use the Bibles provided there in the pew. I'm going to jump straight in because I'm dealing with these two sections today. And the, the first section, the one that we've just read, tells of what John says is the second of Jesus' signs. There are seven or eight signs or, or miraculous actions that Jesus does that John records for us in his gospel. Uh, and this is the second one of them where he heals the son of a royal official. It takes place on Jesus' way back from Jerusalem or on his return from Jerusalem. So he'd been up in the city, if you remember, he had cleared the temple very dramatically. We read about that. He had had conversations there, uh, at least with Nicodemus that we know of. John doesn't tell us about everything that Jesus did up in the city, but from this uh, incident here, we see that some of his, his people from Galilee who'd traveled up with him to Jerusalem had seen what he had done. And they were impressed. John tells us in verse 45 that when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. So they welcomed him home. He was the, the returning hero, if you like. He'd made, a, made some waves up in the capital city, and here he was coming home to Galilee. And if you read just that verse, you'd assume that, that Jesus fellow Galileans um, had a healthy respect for him, that they accepted him, that they understood him, that they took him seriously. But actually, if you read the, the passage, that doesn't appear to be the case. In verse 44, we get a bit of a hint that all's not well. In parentheses and brackets, John tells us, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country, in his own country. There's something about going back to where you belong that people don't always take you very seriously. 
People aren't going to accept Jesus. And Jesus makes all of this explicit in verse 48. Whenever the royal official approaches him, when he begs Jesus to heal his son, Jesus turns to the official, but it's a, it's a plural answer that he gives. And, and we know therefore that there's a, there's a crowd here. It's the official, but it's also a crowd. And Jesus says to the crowd, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. I think he's saying something like this. You're with me as long as there's something to see. Like when I turned the water into wine last time I was here, like when I cleared the temple up in the city of Jerusalem. But when there's no show, when it's just me on my own terms, you don't take me seriously. It's, it's interesting then to contrast, if, if that's the mood of the people in general, the, the royal official stands out by stark contrast. Both his approach to Jesus and his response to Jesus show that he does take Jesus seriously. Look at, look at verse 49. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Now he's come from Capernaum to Cana. How far is that? That's 20 maybe 25 miles. And worse, because Capernaum's on the lakeside and Cana's up in the hills, we know it's 20 to 25 miles uphill, on foot. So here's a royal official leaving his comfortable mansion on the lake shore of Galilee and walking 20 to 25 miles up into the back country to ask a carpenter for help. Why would he do that? It's because he was in trouble and because he thought that Jesus could help. It's not hard to, to imagine our way into this scenario. This guy's son is dying, we're told. And he'll, he'll have done everything possible He'll, he'll have found all the doctors and all the treatments. He's got the resources to test the health service of his day to the, the full. And nothing's worked. You might say this guy's desperate. That's why he's coming to Jesus. And sometimes we get a bit snooty about that. It's okay to be desperate. For most of us, that's the only time we truly come to God. This guy took Jesus seriously as he approached him. But notice how he takes Jesus seriously and how he responds as well. He invites Jesus to come down and Jesus doesn't do it. Doesn't give him what he wants. Doesn't give him what he had had all day on the journey planning in his own mind. Jesus says, you, you go, your son will live. Instead of actually making the journey and, and getting involved, Jesus just says, go home, it's sorted. Now, for nine out of 10 people, or, or maybe 99 out of 100, I think would be disappointed because we knew what we wanted here and we didn't get it. I asked him to come and he didn't. 
But how does the, the official respond? By the way, he doesn't know if this healing's happened. All he's been told is, is go. How does he respond? The man took Jesus at his word and departed, John tells us. Wow. See that phrase? Took Jesus at his word. Jesus says go and he goes. Jesus says my son will live. That's good enough for me. And this initial response to Jesus didn't peter out. You know, like some of our bursts of enthusiasm, we can be excited for a moment, but, but it goes on. After he'd heard about his son's recovery, after he'd put two and two together, he realized, goodness, my son was healed at that moment when Jesus said he would be healed. We read in verse 53 that he and all his household believed. Faith came to the Galilean lakeshore mansion. The official and his family got it. They took Jesus at his word. They saw who he was, what he could do, and how much they needed him, and they staked their life on him. They believed. For me, the most interesting part of this story is to contrast the two responses to Jesus, the royal official and the, the crowd in Cana. The guys in Cana knew Jesus. Uh, if you look on a, a map, Cana's kind of the next village over from Nazareth, just up the road. They knew his family. They knew them well enough to invite them to their, their weddings, their celebrations. They'd seen Jesus turn water into wine, or at least heard about it. So they knew Jesus, but they didn't honor him. And here we have an outsider, a guy from out of town, and it takes him to show a real appetite, to show a real willingness to come, to encounter Jesus, to, to take him at his word. So-called insiders reject Jesus, but the outsider gets it. Nothing much has changed, folks. That dynamic is still very much at work today. People who have grown up close to Jesus in Christian homes or around churches, they often allow their familiarity with Jesus to breed some form of contempt. They choose not to take Jesus seriously. And often it takes an outsider, someone who doesn't have all those benefits of a Christian upbringing or a healthy church involvement. Sometimes it takes these people to, to get Jesus. And in the moments when they do, they become an inspiration to some of us who have grown cold and complacent. My question, whether you've grown up close or far away from Jesus, what about now? Are you taking him seriously now? Let's spend the second bit of our time this morning looking at this 
second incident, the one that we didn't read in the early verses of, of chapter five. This one takes place on another trip that Jesus makes to Jerusalem. So John tells us in the opening verses, feel free to scan the, the passage while I'm uh, quickly outlining it. John tells us about a, a pool there in Jerusalem, Jerusalem called Bethesda or Bethsaida. It's got five colonnades around it. It's somewhere near the Sheep Gate. And this seems to be the place where, where people from the city and beyond who were suffering from disabilities would gather in the hope that they might be made well. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, his focus falls on just one of these invalids, a man who suffered his condition for 38 years. The clue as to why Jesus chooses one guy to focus on when there's a huge crowd might be something to do with that 38 years. If you know the story of God's people, Israel, then you'll know that they wandered in the desert for 40 years between when they left Egypt and when they finally uh, entered into the promised land. But after 38 years, when they were getting close to the, the borders of Canaan, round about that time, an incident happened that we've already encountered in John's gospel. It's the incident with the bronze snake. And we thought about it a few weeks ago. God's people came under attack from some sort of poisonous snakes and they prayed for God to help them. And God commanded Moses to make a snake and to lift it high on a pole so that anyone who looked at it would be healed and would live. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 21. It's an important incident as we pay attention to what John has been teaching us so far in his gospel, we already noticed it in John chapter three, verses 14 and 15, because there, as part of his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says this. He's talking to Nicodemus about how a person finds a new life. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 38 years into the people's journey in the desert, that incident happened. You can't help but think that this man, 38 years lying paralyzed, somehow symbolizes, somehow in our minds is supposed to take us back to that nation of Israel. This, this guy, I think symbolizes the whole of humanity, the human condition. Like him, we're sick. We're waiting for healing. We're waiting for the healer to come. We'll come back to that in a moment, but for now, notice that for all that this guy needs Jesus healing, he doesn't expect Jesus to heal him. What does he expect Jesus to do? Look at the passage. This guy still thinks that the healing lies in the pool. He thinks he needs someone to, to carry him to the pool. I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone gets in ahead of me. He doesn't know that Jesus doesn't need medicines or pools or any kind of props to do his healing. We, we saw it in that first 
passage this morning, Jesus didn't even need to make the journey from Cana to Capernaum. He, he just needed to speak. He says simply, and, and in this case, he simply speaks. He doesn't lift the guy into the pool. He simply says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Now that's quite something to say, isn't it? To somebody who's been on their back for 38 years. He's been on his back for the, from the equivalent of our 1974. That's a long time. Jesus simply says, get up, pick up your mat, and it works. John tells us that the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Folks, we shouldn't be surprised about this, that Jesus has incredible power just in his words. In fact, if you, if you read the Gospels and look out for that, Usually when he does something miraculous, oftentimes he just says things. But folks, this is how God rules the world. He rules the world through his word. In Genesis chapter 1, when we have that account of how God created the world, we don't have a, a picture of him setting some big mechanical project in motion, doing some huge paper mache. No, he just says, let there be light, and there is. Let the sky above separate from the water beneath, and it does. He says it, and it happens. God's word and God's will is the strongest power in the universe. So whenever God comes among us in Jesus, and remember, that's exactly what John wants us to notice in this passage and in this whole book, it's no surprise that his words carry great power. They get the things done that God wants to get done. We, we really shouldn't be at all surprised that when Jesus tells a paralyzed man to get up, that he does it. I want to spend the last few moments noticing and thinking about the big issue in this story that we haven't addressed yet. The question Jesus asks the guy when he approaches him for the first time, do you want to get well? Now that's weird, isn't it? He's lying beside the pool with all the sick people who want to get well. He's been paralyzed for 38 years and Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? It's not as weird as it looks. Think about it. What's going to happen for this guy when he does get well? There's the change of career for a start. He's going to have to get a job. For the first time in his life, this guy's going to have to do work. And then there's his whole identity. He's no longer Bob with the disability. He's now just Bob, ordinary Bob. Bob just as healthy as anybody else. These are the kinds of changes that healing would bring and Jesus knew it and Jesus didn't assume that this man wanted to be healed and he didn't impose a healing. He asked the guy, do you want to get well? 
And it seems to me that Jesus still asks the same question today. And we still have the same soul searching to do as we try to answer him. Do you want to get well? I mean, do you want Jesus to come to you and do what Jesus does? That is to take you as he finds you and straighten you out and make you into something that is good and true and pure. Do you want that? We shouldn't naively think that we do. Let me try and help focus the question for a moment. I've got a pack of pills here. And they're lying pills. Take one of these pills and you can't lie anymore. In fact, you can't deceive people at all anymore. Can't tell half truths. Can't be economical with the truth. Your words become straight as a die. Do you want one? Of anger pills here as well. Take one of these and they'll cure you from anger. You'll never be angry again. Won't be able to. No more tantrums when you don't get your own way. No more using anger to show people how upset you are. No more shouting at the wife and the kids. Do you want one? I don't have any of these pills here, of course. But what if there was a cure for our thirst for revenge, our need to manipulate other people, our middle-class apathy and complacency? Would you want that pill? Do you want to get well? Do we really want to get well? I'd suggest that in many cases we don't. We don't want to get well. We're happy being sick in some of the ways that we're sick. We've grown comfortable lying in our mats, only a shadow of the people that God created us to be. We're sick enough, most of us, all of us, not to even really want to get well. How can we ever get healthy while we're like this? Where can we even begin to find the motivation to get well? We can come to the living God, come among us in Jesus Christ. Everything the Bible tells us about God tells us that he's a healer. It's a theme that runs right through the Bible, right in the earliest days of his dealings with his people. So Exodus 
chapter 15, just after he's brought them out of the promised land, he says in Exodus 15, I am the Lord who heals you. Psalm 103, David celebrates the holistic way in which God changes his people. He says, praise the Lord who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. The Bible doesn't stop there though. It doesn't stop by telling us that God wants to heal us. It shows us that God suffered himself that we might be made well. Isaiah predicts it in his prophecy, chapter 43. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the one by whose wounds we are healed. Do you remember those words from chapter 3 that I pointed out a little bit earlier? He likens himself to the bronze snake in the desert. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was talking about the time when he would be nailed to a pole. When he would be lifted high. And when he would become the one we need to look to if we're to be healed. By his wounds we're healed. How does it work? It's when we see the beauty of Jesus in contrast with our ugly sin, we start to long to be healed. It's when we see the length that he's gone to in order to heal us that we find ourselves moved by his mercy and his grace and his kindness. So when Jesus asks us, when we sense his spirit prompting us and he's asking us, do you want to get well? Finally, there comes a moment when we say yes. There's nothing I want more than to be made well. Let's pray. Father God, we wrongly thought that you would force this on us. That you would force us to be healthier than we want to be. But Lord, as always, you're full of grace and of kindness and of mercy and you let us have what we choose to have. Lord, you stand here today among us. Your spirit is here. And he's moving through the pews and he's speaking into our hearts and he's asking us whether we want to be well. And Lord, we're not sure that we do. 
we pray today that you'd give us such a, a vision of the, the beauty of Jesus, such an insight into his incredible love for us, that we'll realize finally that being sick is no longer the way we want to live. We want to be made well. We want to be healed. We want to be the people that you've created us to be. Amen.